This is the Commercial Property Investing Explained Series, brought to you by Steve Polisi. Find out how commercial property really works and start investing like the pros. Your education starts now. Welcome to the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. I'm your host, Andrew Bean, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Steve Polisi. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm tired, as you know, four-month-old baby now and back in Australia. I know. I can't believe you're back. How was the transition back to reality? It was actually all right. I thought the baby was going to be the biggest issue with the difference in time zones, but she slept through. It was actually us. Our jet lag really got it. But the main issue without whinging too much, because I know it's a first world problem, is obviously just moving into a place, getting furniture, catching up with everyone, still trying to run the business, etc. But um, no, it's been, I'm really happy to be back. It's so weird working on the normal time zone now because normally like <laughs> I would get left alone after about 1 p.m. So I could work for five hours and be really productive. Now it's just like, why does my phone keep going off? Like I'm, I'm not quite used to the normal nine to five now. <laughs> and you got to get some office furniture, mate. I hear you've been working on a ironing board, maybe? <laughs> <That's right. Yeah. laughs> just, just for the listeners. So I didn't have a desk. I found an ironing board. It worked brilliantly because it's got the nice padding on top and it's height adjustable. So anytime I had a video call, I'd, I'd pull it up a foot. And then when I was working, I'd pull it down a foot. So any listeners that are having some tough times or don't have a desk, ironing board. $10 ironing board will do the job perfectly. Do you have it with you right now? I kind of want to look at you in the background, like being able to see you behind an ironing board with your desk, like taking calls. <laughs> no, no. I got the problem. You know, yes, mate. I actually showed every video call I had on a strategy call. I actually told them that and I showed them and they thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and you're not on an ironing board right now, are you? No, nah, the desk got delivered yesterday. So oh, I was okay. for the first week ironing board gate. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right, mate. So we've got another exciting podcast today. We actually have a guest on as well. Who do we have? All right. So we've got a guy called Aaron Burdenshaw, who I've worked with for a few years and done a hundred kind of plus kind of property managers with. So he's a property manager for commercial and that's all he does. So he knows it inside and out. And he is one of the best I found. Like he knows commercial property inside and out and he's confident in his knowledge as well. So that really translates with the tenant and the lessee and things like that. But no, he's, he's a good one to have on. Yeah, well, there's some interesting conversations that we have with him, particularly about the retail lease. I thought that was really interesting how he was talking about, even though you've got a normal lease or you've got a lease, doesn't mean that the retail lease shouldn't apply to that property. It's crazy like how many times that would happen where the wrong lease has been applied to a property and it should be a retail leasing act where you can't charge management back to the tenant. Listeners will have to wait and uh, listen to that conversation because that blew my mind. Yeah, no, it's a good episode. Like, like my favorite bit was just him explaining like the, how involved a property management can be with compliance and things like that. And I know we've plugged before about, oh, it's easy. Tenants pay for everything. It's all easy when it's working well. But if it's not working well, it can be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, commercial property management, and I think property management in general, is a very, very tough job because you're always constantly sorting out issues and you're between the tenant and the landlord. And you can't really take a side. It's just difficult. I'm not sure I would want to do that job. But that's also one of the reasons I recommend getting property managers because it does put that line in the sand where they don't call you up and cry poor and things like that. There's someone who's like, no, this is the lease we're moving forward and just give you good advice as well. But yeah, it it was a really cool chat. Learning about how commercial property really works has never been easier with so many great resources around like this podcast and Steve's book. And he's giving it away for free if you use discount code PODCAST on his website. So go to www.policyproperty.com. Use discount code PODCAST to get the book free. All you have to pay for is shipping. What a great deal. All right, Steve, do you want to kick us off, mate? No worries, Andrew. I obviously know you quite well because we've worked together for a few years, but do you want to give the listeners a little bit of background of like who you are, what you do in the property industry and all that type of stuff? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I um, I kicked off my career in 2001. So, ironically, I started as a property manager for a resi group. So, Harcourt's Blimber down here in Southeast Brizzy. 
with John and Kathy McLeod. I wanted to go in sales at the time, but I remember Kathy specifically saying to me I was too young and dumb to do so. So she whacked me in property management for a couple of years. It wasn't really my thing at that time. I wanted the, I guess, the glorification of the sales. So I ended up bailing and going into mortgage broking with my old man and doing Harcourt's financial services for a while. We set up a little mortgage broking business, which I still am a part shareholder in. Did that for a couple of years. I think we ended up getting about 250 or 300 million under management. So that was fun working with my old, old man, had its own challenges, but he's a pretty wise old fella. So it was a good period to be under him, I guess. I did a stint of resi sales for a year and just got sick of the weekends, to be brutally honest. And, and that was probably <laughs> compounded by my time in mortgage broking as well. So I was at a, a Melbourne Cup function actually, and I bumped into one of the guys that used to be at Harcourts and I was complaining. I'm like, man, I don't want to do this, this weekend work anymore. And he said, why don't you try commercial? He said, you know, it's five days a week. It's still selling. I'm like, that sounds great. Like that's a hundred percent me. So I had an interview with his, with the guy that he was working for a week later. Yeah, that was 2008, precipice of the GFC, September I started. So it was a very hard introduction to property at that time. So I've been in property pretty much ever since. I've had a blip in tech, but uh, yeah, pretty much for the last kind of 15 years, I guess, in commercial. It's funny you mentioned the sales part of it. So literally before you jumped on the podcast, me and Andrew were talking about how we would both never do sales for real estate <laughs> because you lose every single weeknight and weekend because mm. when people are buying properties, it's when they're off work. And we're yep. just like, yeah, this is not for us. We need some form of lifestyle, with, especially as investors. Like we bought commercial yeah. to have a lifestyle. So yep. taking that away with work just seems kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. I think the hardest thing at the time was we were doing residential apartment sales in the CBD and I was young, right? I was in my mid-20s. So we would go out and party on a Friday night and all the boys that I worked with, I socialized with. So we'd party on Thursday night and Friday night. And then you get to work on Saturday and you'd be in the middle of the CBD, Albert Street in a suit and tie, 30 degree heat, sweating profusely. And I was watching all these people walk around, have coffees and breakfasts. And I still remember saying to my mate, I'm like, man, there's got to be another way for us to earn money because I don't want to be doing this on a weekend anymore. So yeah, there was that kind of precipice of wanting that space just for myself and my reasons back then were different to my reasons now because I've got a young family. But yeah, that was the catalyst. And it's funny how those little things can make monumental shifts in the direction of your life. Was that like off the plan sales? Because I've got a random question if it was. All those no, stories it about- No, it was, it was all established buildings. So like Festival Towers where the old Festival Hall used to be, Charlotte Towers, a lot of those sort of buildings in and around that pocket now where the subway's going. Yeah, because I was going to ask, I once got offered to sell off-the-plan apartments in Brisbane by a developer, and they were offering 82 grand per property. I'm like, this is just baffling. Like, I should sell <laughs> yeah. my soul, sell 50 of them, and be done. Yeah, the commissions that they pay on those things are phenomenal. Yeah, I never got into that space. But ironically, the mate that I just referenced in the story is probably about to head into that space now. So I'm going to be keeping a, a really close eye on, on how he does. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit harder now. There's a bit more education about like the negatives mm. of off the plans. So sure. I don't think yeah. it's like it was kind of in like the nineties and two thousands. Correct. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people that bought those off the plan. We were doing the resales, but they were in a negative equity position for a very, very long time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of spruikers have been involved in off the plans. That's kind of their sweet spot. Yeah. hundred percent. So, mate, can you just walk us through your primary responsibilities of being a commercial property manager day to day? Yeah. I was thinking about when we started talking about doing this podcast, you know, what I do. And I think if I can sort of summarize it really quickly, and then I'll get into the nuances of it, but I think a property manager's role is protecting the lessor's interest by correctly administering the lease. Because that's ultimately what we do, right? I mean, the agent gets involved with the leasing, the leasing negotiation of it. The solicitors typically draw up the lease and, and manage the conditions of the lease. And then our role is to just administer that lease because all leases are written differently. And I think that's one of the reasons that commercial property management can be so critical in the performance of your investment because leases aren't all written the same and you really have to be clued in on what to look for and where to look for it to be able to administer that correctly. But I mean, generally, it's the typical stuff, right? It's, it's making sure all the invoices go out at the correct time in line with trust accounting legislation and all the acts that we've got to do. Receiving that rent, chasing up arrears if there is arrears, managing compliance, managing maintenance. There's a lot of reactive little jobs that you do on a sort of day-to-day -day basis that I think bank up completely to the broader role. Yeah. Yeah, I've always said a rockstar property manager can make all the difference for a commercial asset. If they treat it like their own 
and they take real control of that asset, like they personally own it, it can just make a world of difference for their performance. Yeah. And I think that, and I'm going to blow up my own horn here, but one of the differences between our business, I suppose, and a lot of other property and not all, but a lot of other property management businesses is that you have a commercial sales and leasing business. The property management business is generally is an add-on, right? Yeah. So it's an add-on because it's a byproduct of them doing deals for clients and saying, hey, I want management. But it also acts as a future income stream for them because you know they're looking, okay, once we've got exclusive right over that stock under our property management, we can then lease and sell that stock down the track. So typically the business piece is in first instance an add-on and then it's run by an employee. And again, don't get me wrong, there's some great property managers out there that are employees of businesses. But the difference with us is that it's my business there is no one that is going to look after anyone else's property as well as I am because it ultimately is a direct reflection on my business. Yes. So the vested interest I have in my client's commercial assets are directly related to the vested interest I have in my business. Yeah. Yeah. I actually find that with Resi as well as commercial is like, I always recommend small companies for exactly that reason, Aaron, is that you'll look after it way better. What I actually find, and no offense if this is potentially you in five years time is the good property managers end up getting lots of clients because they're good property managers. And then yeah. all of a sudden they have to hire someone and yeah. the person they hire never <laughs> cares as much as they do. And they hire yeah. some, some young 20 year old, like you said, that goes out on Friday night and parties in yeah. the city and doesn't yeah, yeah. really care. And I actually yeah. do find I have to change my property managers every like three to five years as they grow. And you're right. It was never the intent with our business. You know, I always wanted to keep it small, but the reality is that we are growing and we've grown considerably over the last two years of launching but i'm really mindful of that and we're already looking at putting strategies in place that allow for me to remain front and center and deliver the service and just do it differently right like our tagline is same industry different approach yeah and and so we're mindful and cognizant of that is an issue Mm -hmm. and we're going to put plans in place so that we can hopefully mitigate that issue but yeah, let's talk again in three years and we'll see if it's still, if it's still working. <laughs> just, just be facetious anyway. But it yeah. is, it's just getting good right people. Like I got to the yeah. point where I obviously got too busy and I couldn't take as many kind of client calls and strategy sessions as I want. So I was like, yes. I need someone who's as good as me, if not better, to be able to help me out. And that's when we yeah. hired Andrew. I approached him and he took the role and now he works with me. Yeah, it is. And you're, look, it's hard to find the right people. And it's not something that I'm looking forward to doing, but it's something that I have to be mindful that will probably happen at some stage in our life cycle. Well, we'll see if you're on the podcast again in five years' time then. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) Schedule it now. So just to be clear, mate, you only do asset management. You don't do any selling of any kind of real estate. Yeah, so property management, asset management is our 100% business. So all day, every day, that is all I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about my clients, I'm thinking about my tenants, I'm thinking about where my business is going. So it's a very different mindset than a principle of a sales or a traditional real estate office that is thinking probably majority of the time about the sales and leasing, because to be honest, that's where the big bucks are, right? right. And to a lesser degree about the property management. And so the way we structure our business is unique in the sense that because I've got 10 years experience in the industry, you know, I know so many people. And again, I I built a good reputation. You know, I've always prided myself on doing the right thing, not only for my clients, but with my peers, because there can be a lot of animosity sometimes between agents. So I really made sure that I conducted myself well over the decade I was in the game. And What that's allowed me to do is have a lot of really great relationships with a lot of really great agents. So when our clients need an agent to look for a new tenant if they leave or they decide they want to sell their business, I've got the intel and I know who's who in the zoo to be able to refer them to the best possible person, right? So for example, if you've got an asset in Brendale that's uh, called a thousand square meter shed, I know which agent in which agency is the right person to use in that area because they're the dominant agent. So we can work with CBRE, JLL, Cushman's, Colliers, you know, Ray White, whoever we need to. And it's a little bit different than a traditional model where you might have a great property manager. As I say, I don't want to tarnish all property managers to say that if you're not a business owner, you're not great because there's a lot of great ones out there. But if that owner then has a requirement for their property where they want to, or they need a new tenant, or they need to sell the property, you get whoever is in that agency that looks after either that asset class or that territory. And now they may be the best person in the market, but they may not be. And like that's a really critical thing when you're talking about one, either your exit strategy or two, the long-term viability of that investment for that next tenant that's coming in. Yeah, it's very rare to find like someone who just does property management as well. Because like you said, there's bigger bucks in the selling of the properties. So that's why yeah. it's normally the tag on. Yeah, yeah. Let's be honest, it's kind of more exciting as well. You know, like for a lot of these guys and to a lesser degree, girls that do sales and leasing, like 
it's a buzz, right? You get the highs of doing the deals and the highs of the big commissions. So it's a very attractive industry to be in. It's quite, I guess, glamorous in a way as well. I mean, real estate's a glamorous business, yeah? Yeah. No offense to any kind of real estate agents, but it's an industry where you get to wear a suit and become a professional quite quickly. And if you are good, earn quite a good income in a short amount of time. Like it's not like, and it's not like you're a doctor where you study for literally 10, 15 years, become a specialist, then start earning big bucks. Like I know some sales agents that earn more than surgeons. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wild industry. If you can get in at the right time in the right place and you're good. Yeah. And uh, no offense, Aaron, like I imagine that's why property managers, like they're a bit more transient. They seem to come and go quite a lot. And maybe that is because there's a glass ceiling in terms of lending potential, unless you work for yourself and expand. Yeah. And I think also objectively, it's really unglorified work. You don't get a lot of highs and, and you do get quite a lot of lows. You know, I mean, ultimately putting all the tasks aside, your role day in and day out is generally to deal with some level of conflict and some level of problem. And the majority of the population don't like doing that. None of us like conflict, right? None of us like problems, but you have to be adept at handling it. And so unless you can get your mind in the right space to be able to handle that ongoing, it's a really tough job. And again, sort of circling back to what I said before for me, I mean, I just deal with it because it's my business and that's what I do, you know? So, but if you don't have that anchor, that hook for you, like you say, you can become transient because like, shit, I'm going to get the same money somewhere else doing something else that's not going to drain me so emotionally. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a thankless career from one side because the tenant is always going to think you're overcharging them or trying to screw them over. And when there's an issue, the owner's annoyed because there's an issue and you need to get on top of it straight away. And like, so you might get thanks from one side, but rarely both sides. Great. You're pretty much a professional problem solver and you're always in the middle too. You can never really take a side. Yeah, you're right. You always have to be mindful about protecting the lessor's interest as best you can because ultimately they are your client. But you're correct, Andrew. I mean, because people are people, right? Again, just really quickly circling back, one of the things that attracted me to commercial was the lack of weekends, but it was also the lack of emotion. You know, I thought, oh, I'm going to go into commercial. It's just business driven. You know, it's numbers, it's this and that. And to a degree it is, yes, because it's a less emotional purchase than shit, will Harry's bed fit in that bedroom? And is this the right color that matches the purple suede thing that I got from Freedom or whatever it is? But ultimately, you're still dealing with people and people are emotional and egotistical driven creatures. And so, yeah, you're right. You need to make sure that everyone is feeling like their interests are being heard and to your best ability, their interests are being met. Yeah, okay. Aaron, so we did a podcast a few ago on AI and things like that, but just generally like how's technology like changed the landscape of commercial property management in the recent years? Yeah, so the original property management software that we used was all kind of desktop driven, you know, so you were literally, you had everything on your desktop, your server in the office. The majority of the good platforms these days are web driven, so you can access it anywhere, anytime. So I've got my home office and then I've got a laptop. So no matter where I am, I can get access to the information I need. The program that we use in particular is a little bit unique in the sense that it is a trust accounting system that's been designed for property. So whereas there are other systems that are maybe property systems, property CRMs that have property management, trust accounting bolt-ons, this one in particular is really geared towards trust accounting. So what it allows us to do is give our owners and their accountants and their financial representatives the best possible extrapolation of data and the best possible amalgamation of the ins and outs across the portfolio and specifically the asset. We also have AI built into the system. So for every new property that comes on, we basically get all their invoices directed to an admin email. So like your Brisbane City Council rates, your strata bills, your insurance, your water, for example. And they'll come in and they go into this email, then they get funneled into our software by AI. And AI will read the invoice and it will pick up the biller code, oh, wow. the client, the property the to and from dates, the amount, the GST, and then it will code it into our system using the accounting-based codes that we use. And then we basically go through and sort of just check it off and make sure that everything is as it should be, and then we process them. So that's a really big piece for us because ultimately investors want to make sure that their investment from a financial point of view is being kept correctly. And the other thing we're about to just launch as well is a, a new property management inspection system, which will allow us to really quickly and efficiently go out and report on the condition of a property for a lessor. So whether that be an entry, a routine, or an exit, 
and this software syncs with our trust accounting software. So it brings down all the property details you go through and you can have these templates set up so you know that when you're going through, you've got this mezzanine, this warehouse, you know, this yard, car park, whatever it is. And you can go through and get a really good understanding of the assets integrity at that time and then reference that again down the track when you go back for your next one. So look, for me, it is, it's critical because it's all about the efficiencies that technology brings, which will then obviously allow me to scale a bit bigger while maintaining the service that we're talking about before. Yeah, I was not expecting you to have that AI technology already, but it, like, it is pretty simple software when it comes down to it. It's just reading documents and looking for keywords and things like that. And I imagine exactly, you have to check man. over once it kind of uploads into the system. Yeah, yeah, you've you got to get it right. And, and sometimes depending on people's invoices, sometimes it can miss stuff. And, you know, you always need to be checking it, but it would cut down the average invoice time from, let's call it two minutes to maybe 30 seconds, right? And that probably doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're doing 50 of them, it makes a big deal. And then when you're doing 100 of them, it makes an even bigger deal. So it's a critical part of the platform and what we use every month when we're doing all our expenses for our lessors. Yeah, and unless you own a commercial property, you don't realize how much documentation there actually is. Like even when we do like a due diligence report, we give a Dropbox link and it's got like 50 plus files every single time. Mm. Yeah. And I'd imagine when you're doing inspections and things like that, in time, there might be some kind of AI technology where it scans the warehouse with a laser, you know, that laser that, that just scans all of the walls and everything. Something like that would be uh, pretty interesting in the future because it would just like, you have a template of what it should look like. It scans it in a couple of seconds and it picks up where things have been broken, things have been changed and stuff like that to check it. 100% man. Yeah. I mean, when I had my break from real estate, which is my midlife crisis, my wife calls it, I was, I was approaching 40 <laughs> and I did take two years off. And I went into tech and I was in the wearable technology space and there is a 100% scope for that sort of stuff down the track where you'll be able to wear a head-mounted system, you'll be able to go through and you'll be able to just monitor everything and look at everything. It'll suck in the data, it'll then reference it against the old system and then it'll be able to produce a report for you. So I think we're still a little while yeah. off from that, but I look forward to being the Terminator and walking around <laughs> in my tenancy with my buddy. <laughs> laser beaming everyone get out of my way well have you seen the the new ray-bans you get ray-bans that have the camera on them and it does all the kind of digitally and you can do social media take photos record auto translate yeah so if you're in the country someone's talking to you the earpiece will automatically convert it for you like yeah there's some cool stuff coming i actually think there's a good opportunity for when you're buying a property going to get those 3d scans andrew because It'll tell you all the dimensions of the mezzanine area, the floor, mm. as opposed to going there and trying to measure it. You'll like exactly yeah. know if it's as per title. We actually do that already in self-storage. Sorry, Steve. He doesn't like yeah. me talking about self-storage. Because <laughs> what they do is like, if you're doing a conversion, you go into a space and then they scan it and then they figure out the best possible layout for the space that you've got. So you get the most out of the ah, actual cool. warehouse that you're converting. That is yeah. cool. All right. So moving on. Because we don't want to talk about self-storage. I've told Andrew he's not allowed to even say the word anymore. Blacklisted. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just loved it. Even like I talked to clients on their strategy call and they mentioned self-storage. They're like, oh, Andrew was talking about self-storage. I'm like, bloody Andrew. <laughs> I saw the video. He's got really excited about his doors. He's like, look at all these doors. <laughs> doors for days, baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so one of the main things that like, the best thing I find with property managers is when you've got like disagreements with the tenants. Do you yeah. have any cool stories or big disagreements or anything like that? Like what's the most common one? I think, again, the advantage that I probably bring to the table through Bounty is having so many years of experience negotiating sales and leasing transactions. Property management and sales and leasing are two different skill sets, technically and fundamentally. But yeah, I'm as comfortable as someone can be over the phone or in face or in person is probably a better word in face. That sounds ridiculous. Dealing with conflict. And I'm happy to have those hard conversations. I mean, my wife hates fighting with me because I've spent the better part of two decades at war every day dealing with people and negotiations. So you kind of get comfortable with it after a while, right? But yeah, look, in terms of a bit of an anecdote, so there there was a property that we've just recently been referred to that was down at Coomera. Mm -hmm. So the guy bought it about a year ago and when the property settled, the tenants contacted the property manager to say, hey, there's an extended mezzanine in in the tenancy. It's not approved. We cannot get our insurance unless we get a COC. Now, they're a listed company, so this is a non-negotiable for them, right? They have to have all their insurance and their certificate of occupancy has to be all Mickey Mouse. And so I got a hold of the email stream from the old property manager, and basically what this person had done was over a year acted as a, a mail forwarder. So the tenant would email in, 
she would then forward that to the lessor. The lessor would respond. He would, she would then forward that to the tenant. And it was just these bounces backwards and forwards. And this went on for a year to the point where the tenant was getting pretty agitated, right? I saw the last email. They were at the verge of probably taking legal action. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke to this guy uh, for about 15 minutes. And I remember because I was in Dan Murphy's trying to buy some ginger beer. And uh, <laughs> we were chatting about the process. And I said, mate, look, what you need is just someone to go down there, meet these people face to face and have a talk to them. And he said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So anyway, he sent me all the details around the mezzanine. I spoke to him again. I said, look, you're not going to get this approved. Like, You cannot provide a certificate of currency for this because based on the increase to the net lettable area, you're going to breach your car parking ratio. So, And I rang a town planner that I know just to make sure I wasn't giving incorrect information. But ultimately, we were not going to be able to provide the certificate of classification. Therefore, they could not do what they needed to do. So I called this fellow and I went down and had a meeting with him. And I just said, look, we can't give it to you. And he looked at me quite shocked and he said, what do you mean? I said, mate, we can't do it. And I explained why. And he goes, oh, okay. He said, has that taken a year to do? I said, no, no, it just took someone to come down and actually speak to you and explain the reality is that we can't give you what you need us to give. And I said, look, my intention of coming down here was to actually say, hey, let's rip out the mezzanine and then you don't have to worry about it. But the problem was when I arrived there that they were fully using the mezzanine. Like it was all set out as offices. They had people everywhere. So that wasn't even an option. Yeah. But through that conversation while I was down there, he sort of said, look, you know, we're actually outgrowing the space. We need something bigger. I yeah. thought, okay, well, you know, here's a way where we can maybe work together. So over the next couple of weeks, we negotiated to let them out of their lease early. We're both sharing the cost of the renegotiation, so the appointment of the agent and the marketing, because ultimately we couldn't do what they needed us to do, which prohibited them from doing what they needed to do. Yeah. So the best course of action now is that we both decided to part ways mutually. It's all really amicable. They'll go and find a new place, we'll find a new tenant, and we'll move on. And we've done that in a two-and-a-half-month process versus a year of emails going backwards and forwards. So, yeah, that's probably the most relevant one I've got that's top of mind right now. Yeah, there's something about emails. I even find that with work sometimes when there's back and forth with solicitors or even buyers, (laughs) agents, things like that. People just misconstrue what you're saying. You can tell that people get a little bit testy as the time goes on. And You give them a phone call and it's all sweet straight away. And I think in way a byproduct of where our society is going. Back when I was doing real estate, you didn't have DocuSign. You didn't have all those things. It was you met people face-to-face and you did meetings and you signed the paperwork with them in front of them. You know, I mean, now I use DocuSign. I can get someone to sign something in Indonesia in five minutes. The personal piece of it is becoming more distant. So it's not necessarily the people that are coming into the industry. It's not necessarily their fault, but the environment for them isn't conducive for them to learn those skills that I learned as a 20-year-old that I've now matured into my 40s. Yeah, and like a lot of property managers, even like I've seen some that have like an online portal. And if you're a tenant and got a complaint, you log into the portal, write your complaint. Yep. They're trying to automate it and yes. it just bugs the hell out of you. Yeah. If I've got an issue of any of my properties, not, I literally send a text message to like you or the property manager and I yep. want it done. I don't want to have to remember that I log in and go into a system and then wait yes. and not know if I've been heard or not. Like, yeah, the, yeah. the times are changing a little bit. Yeah, agreed. So, mate, has the rise in interest rates and cost of living had any real effect on the way you manage commercial properties? I mean, it's had an effect, I think, in terms of our arrears. So there has been a noticeable blip in terms of the arrears that we're seeing. And I think it's a direct byproduct of the fact that cost of living has gone up, people's repayments, their groceries, everything has gone up. We organized some babysitters for the kids the other day, and that's gone up from 20 bucks to 25 bucks, which again is fine, but everything is going up. And so what happens is, and look, primarily probably from an SME point of view, not so much maybe from a listed, but I'll just talk like, let's call, talk small business owner, because a lot of our businesses are under 50 people, right? And maybe Queensland based predominantly. If your business is generating X amount of revenue, and as an owner, you're pulling out Y amount of revenue to cover your living costs. And then all of a sudden, Y goes up, two things have to happen. You either have to generate more revenue out of your business or things are going to start getting missed in the business. And at the moment, some people can't generate more revenue for their business for whatever reason that might be. So then things start to get missed because payments and monies are being directed elsewhere than where they probably should. We've definitely seen a change in the space. I think people are hurting a little bit, but I did a short video on my socials I would have been two or three months ago, maybe, but it was just about managing rent arrears. And I think this is one of the critical things going back to email forwarding that we're talking about before is that if you've got a good relationship with your tenants, you take the time to have a good relationship with your tenants, they will generally show respect in return and try and work through those processes with you. And I think that's a really important part is that as we go into this uncharted territory where we don't know what's happening with interest rates and we're unsure about the economy, is making sure that there's communication between tenant, lessor, and property manager, 
and that everyone is working together to get the right result, which is everyone being happy, the business continuing, the owner gets their rent and we all move on. Yeah, what, what I've found as well, especially because remember like five to 10 years ago, having like 3% rental increases to 5% rental increases was actually quite a good strong lease. But yes. then now like yeah. we've got 7 8% inflation. What I find happening is all of a sudden you get to end of a three-year lease and we're bumping the rent up 15 20%. But that yep. business hasn't had a chance to bump their fees up by 20%, for instance, as well. So there's a bit of a lag time as well. Yeah, it's prolific in real estate. And I know real estate agents earn enough money as it is, but I mean, the leasing fees and the leasing commission that we were charging in 2008 when I started is the same as what we're charging in 2023. Now, again, real estate agents don't need to make any more money. I'll be the first one to put my hand up with that. But again, you're right. There are businesses out there that haven't been able to reconcile that increased cost and parcel onto the consumer. So it's hitting the bottom line directly. So we just spoke about fees, mate. Can you just give us a broad view of like what your usual fees and things would be to have a, a commercial property manager like yourself? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, each agency is going to be different. And one of the things that we've tried to do here is we've really tried to streamline our fees to just make it easier for the lessor to engage with us. So, you know, I've seen other agency appointment forms where they've got fee for the rent review and uh, you've got postage and petties and then you've got an annual banking fee and then you've got this and that. We've broken it down and looked at the effort per asset and what we need to recover and tried to create just a single management fee that covers that. And the beauty about having it just under a single management fee is that in a lot of cases, if the lease is written well, the management fee is recoverable by the tenant. What that means is the lessor is getting the maximum amount of money back from the tenant in relation to the cost of our service, then ultimately obviously increases the net return. So you've got the management fee, which is obviously the critical one. We've got a, a small handover fee, which covers the administration, the process of bringing everything into our system. That also covers me going and meeting the tenant. So one of the most important things for me in the business, and I mentioned this before, is meeting the tenant face-to-face. Because as Steve referenced before, a lot of tenants, not all, a lot of tenants probably have a biased opinion on what a property manager is and what a property Mm. manager does. So what I want to try and do is just break down that preconceived misconception in some cases and just let them know that I'm another person, I'm another business owner like them that's on the other end and I'm just trying to do my job really well for everyone involved. So so we do that as part of our handover. There's a bunch of ad hoc fees that you may pay for certain things like court appearances, et cetera. Fingers crossed you never get to it. And then there's probably just the relating fees so that the fees that are attached to negotiating a lease. So for example, while we don't look for a new tenant or sell properties, When the lease is coming to expiry, if the tenant wants to stay and sign a new lease or they've got to execute an option, then we'll charge a fee to renegotiate that process for them. And so with like a percentage, I kind of want to get a percentage right now, what an investor would be looking at would be a fair rate for a property manager to be managing their property. Sure. So I'm going to give you a really broad answer because it is really broad, but we have a minimum monthly fee, which is $200 a month plus GST. And on the smaller end of the assets, that usually will sort of sit between six or 7%. That's something that's on the smaller end. However, once you start getting up into that 50 to 100, 100 to 200 grand a year, the percentage really drops off. Do you know what I mean? So as an example, if you had someone that had a rental property that was generating 150,000 a year, you would expect to pay somewhere in the vicinity of three and a half percent. If you had something that was generating sort of 250,000 a year, that would probably come down a little bit. So I think in that, let's call it 25 to 100, somewhere between five and 7% is probably what you're going to pay. That 100 to 200, somewhere between, let's call it three and a half to maybe four and a half. And then over that 200, again, it will come down a little bit, but there's a cap to where it comes down because like those larger assets, for example, we've got one over at Acacia Ridge, the net rental is 290 a year. And I think we're charging about 3% on that. And so annually, it looks like a big figure, but it's got a million dollars worth of fit out in it. The cold room fit out has to be serviced. So there's a ton of maintenance contracts. There's a ton of time looking after the integrity of that internal, the fit out of the asset. So you charge a bit more for that. It also really is dependent on the structure of the asset. So if you've got 100,000 or let's call it 150,000 a year, is that one tenant or Mm. is it three tenants? I'm going to charge more for three tenants than I am one tenant because there's more work involved with it. I'm not going to charge three times as much, but there'll be a difference in that. Also retail versus industrial, you know, we charge a little bit more for for retail properties because you've got the whole retail shop leases act to it to adhere to. And there's just more compliance and more legislation that's required. So that's a bit of a snapshot of the property management fee in relation to getting a new tenant. So an average 
leasing commission for a, a leasing agent to find you on your tenant would be, you know, when I started, as I said, was 11% for one year, 12% for two, 13, three, 14, four, 15, five, and then, you know, over and above. So those fees are still very relative today and pretty common. There are some agencies that are putting that up and that's a direct representation of the first year's net annual rental. So for example, if it was a one-year lease, 100 grand a year, you'd expect to pay about 11 grand commission to the leasing agent. When you look to the next step, which is, okay, what do we look at from a renegotiation or reletting fee for our internal tenants? So we then go, okay, well, there's not as much work involved with finding a new tenant because you don't have to put listing up, take people through, do inspections, field inquiry. But there's still a ton of work when you're renegotiating a new lease because you've got to understand market rents, you've got to renegotiate terms, bonds, securities, all those sort of things. So we say, well, if we're going to do a three-year lease for 100 grand, you'd pay 13,000 for a new lease, you know, we'll charge half of that. And then if it's an option again, so if you've got a tenant that's coming up towards an option, there's less work involved again. There's still work because you typically an option will have a market review in place. So you've got to understand rents, you've got to speak to valuers, you've got to get a feel for where the market is, but there's less work because you're not negotiating the terms because the terms of the option are dictated out in the lease. So then we charge half again on that. So we try and be mindful of the money we're charging for the effort that we put in. Yeah, that's probably my biggest whinge from clients is the option fee because they in their head that it's like, they don't have to do anything. It's just them emailing saying, Aaron, let's exercise the next option. And that's, yeah. I, I hear complaints about that fee all the time. Yeah, and look, I've seen other management businesses and I've seen a number of them where they charge 10% for the option. And so if you've got a hundred grand, right, you're charging 10 grand, you're right. Like it's just too much money, yeah? I mean, there is a level of work that goes into it because you have to do a market review and the lessors are going to want as much as possible and the tenant's going to want as little as possible. So there is a negotiation that has to happen. So there should be a fee attached to it, but should it be that much? Probably not. So yeah, we try and sort of grade it back because we want the business to be profitable but yep. we want our clients' investment to be profitable as well. Actually, this might be a bit more of a personal slash business question. Each property manager, how many properties do you think they could manage? And I know that's a, how long's a piece of string because it might be a sure. $200 million asset. But like if you were managing this, the typical mum and dad investor, 500K to 2 million type warehouse, retail, things like that, like how many properties would you be comfortable managing, do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, the golden rule of thumb has always been one per 100. You know, I mean, that's what it was back, you know, in the day when I first started. So one property manager per 100 properties. I think it still kind of rings pretty true. I don't know if I do one per 100 on my own. I think that if you had some support, like some basic admin support to do those little jobs that you need to do, because ultimately in any role, you've got your $100 an hour jobs and you got your $10 an hour jobs. And so you need to have someone to do those $10 an hour jobs so that the person that's managing your asset can focus on the $100 an hour jobs. So if you said 1 p.m. plus an admin support, and they wouldn't necessarily need to be full-time, they could be part-time, you should be able to comfortably manage in the vicinity of 100 assets. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, okay. And just for the listeners, we've heard a lot about like different fees charging for this, for that. I just want to make it clear, how do you lay out the terms and conditions of the fee structure at the start? Like, I just want to make sure that people know that there's actually some kind of a contract in place before you jump in. It's not like a hidden fees and stuff like that, is it? No, no. I mean, look, you know, real estate has come a long way over the last decade or two, and and the legislation around disclosure is, is paramount and is well and truly in place. But from our side of things, when we have a new opportunity come into the business, we do a full proposal. It's about seven or eight pages. So it gives a bit of background about myself, the business, the service we provide, and then it'll break down the full fee structure. So that that goes out to the client in the first instance. So they know before we have our first call, what they're getting themselves into. We then basically replicate that in the form six. So within your form six is your appointment to act. So that's your appointment that you need to have under the office of fair trading for your property management sort of sell or to lease. So all the fees are outlined in there. So there should be new clients coming into this space should be very well aware of what they're going to pay. And if someone tries to charge you something that's not in there, well, then that's your reference point. You know, if it's on the form six, they're not entitled to charge it. Yeah. All right, Aaron, can you tell us about a craziest thing you found in a property or do you have any horror stories, things like that? 
Yeah, so I mean, I've been lucky to date that I haven't found any dead bodies or anything too out of control. Because <laughs> that that <laughs> uh, it does happen, right? Like, you know, there are instances and, and, and stories of property managers, you know, arriving to properties and having this smell and then going in yeah. and finding that someone's passed away. And I shouldn't make light of it. So I do apologize for laughing through that. But I've been lucky that I haven't had that experience. But certainly, probably the one that stands out in my mind the most was when I first started my career. So when I was doing property management over at Bulimba, and I think I was about a year in. And we were doing our routine inspections, which at that stage, I think we did quarterly or six monthly from memory. So I had to sort of go and get all my keys and then just kind of go around to each property. We'd issued the entry notices. And I arrived to this property on Hawthorne Road and I walked, so I was up the stairs, a two-level unit. I walked up the stairs and the front door was open, but the screen door was closed. And so I just sort of knocked on the screen door. I probably did it too light anyway, and, and no one answered. And so once you do that, like, you know, that's your right of passage to go in. Yeah. So you've sent your entry notice, you knock to make sure there's someone there or they're not. And then you start going in. So I've got my keys out and I've got my key in the door and I'm trying to open it. And the bloody thing wouldn't open. I'm like, get in there. And I'm like trying to turn it around. And all of a sudden this lady walks around the corner in her nighty and she says, can I help you? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm here for the inspection. She goes, we don't have an inspection here. We own this place. And I'm like, what do you mean? I got my notes out and I was at the wrong property. Um, so I completely buffed up the address. And at 22 years old, that was an absolutely horrifying experience. You know, like I was so embarrassed. I swear to God, I must have looked like a tomato when I left that place because, you know, just there that wasn't even on my radar that you could do something so stupid. So yeah, that taught me a very big lesson to really know where you're going before you start your inspections. I've actually got a similar story when I used to be a residential buyer's agent was, an agent sold me an off-the-market property, what well, was trying to sell me, but typed the wrong number into the actual, like, in the emails. So yeah. I did all my research and analysis, and we wanted to go under contract subject, obviously, building and pest inspection. And then only realized when we did the building and pest inspection, the agent typed the number in wrong, and we we're actually buying the wrong property because I was just like, something's not right here. The pictures don't match the inspection and things like that. So these things sometimes do happen. Yeah, I'm very, very mindful when I grab keys these days where I'm going. What do you find the most common issue for like an investor who's buying a property? What's the normal thing that causes dramas like when they do buy a property for the first time? I think maintenance is a really contentious issue and as is make goods. So traditionally in a well-written lease, the tenant is responsible for maintenance Typically, they're responsible for the servicing of air conditioners, servicing of fire equipment, roller doors, just general looking after the assets itself. A really good clause might have things like looking after the roof and, and so on and so forth. But sometimes leases aren't written really well, which is a comment I made before. And quite often you get leases that are on commercial tenancy agreements, which is an REIQ document that's a short form lease for leases under three years. And they can be really ambiguous. And I think a lot of commercial investors get into this space thinking that tenants pay for everything and tenants maintain everything. And that's absolutely true if the lease is written that way. But if the lease isn't written that way and the lease is ambiguous, which a lot of them are, and has words like fair wear and tear, it can be really tricky to navigate. So one of the processes we have when a tenant on boards is that we actually send them out some information and Going back to a comment you made before about logging into a portal. So we actually do have a QR code and a link that our tenants log their maintenance requests on. And that is primarily so that we can capture photos and capture as much information as, as possible. But it's pretty easy. Just put your camera over a QR code. But we give them information in the first instance to say, hey, here's a copy of your lease. Here's what your maintenance clause looks like. Here's what your make good clause looks like. Get familiar with those before you contact us. Have a look. Go, okay, well, something's wrong. Obviously, there's a huge caveat there that if it's a, an emergency or it's a health and safety thing, like, shit, pick up the phone, ring my mobile, and we'll fix it or ring a plumber or ring a sparky. In the instance where it's just a standard issue, like the toilet seat's broken, have a look at your lease. Who's responsible for it? And then make the call. So navigating that piece is really difficult. So the hard thing I find is the normal wear and tear because... The tenant hasn't been there forever. So say the wall's deteriorating and they only moved in three years ago and it gets yep. to the point where you have to renovate the wall, they're not yep. going to cover that cost because even though it's normal wear and tear, they've only been there for three years. So there is always some form of ambiguity around it. Yeah, hugely. It's a constant challenge in the business. It's one of the things that we work on, I think, daily is trying to get clear on whose responsibility is what. And look, what I try and say to lessors is that when there's a scenario where it's just grey, and if it's not a huge thing, like maybe it's a $500 bill for some electrical work or something, sometimes it's just in your best interest to do it. Sometimes that little 
sign of good faith to say, hey, look, we're really not sure whose this is, we'll take responsibility, can go a huge way to fostering that relationship with your tenant and making sure that they treat your asset in the best possible way. So yeah. I think sometimes you could look at it and go, ah, it's not my fault, it's their problem, you know, but yep, that might be technically correct, but morally, what's the right way to go? So I always try and have that discussion with our lessors and just say sometimes there's a time and a place where you need to take the high road and it will pay you dividends down the track. Yeah, it makes yeah. a big difference when your perceived like landlord is spending money on the property. He's doing the right thing. He's looking after you. And then you're like, I get a rent increase. That's okay. He's done all these things to make my life, my business better. I actually noticed that a lot of investors will start spending the money and doing that very, very close to an option or a rent review or something like that to try and look like they're a good person. But you have to set it up months before and have that. But they try and do it yeah, so yeah. close. Like, oh, but I did this. So, so you give me this much money, you know? So yeah. Stay up to date with all the hints, tips, and tricks in commercial property by following Polisi Property on Facebook. Go to Polisi Property, hit that follow button, and never miss a beat with Polisi Property. So, mate, what's the most important thing in your mind when it comes to actually managing these properties? I think just going back to the comment I made earlier, which is just making sure that you're protecting the lessor's interest by administering the lease correctly. I think that it's really easy to get lazy and assume that just because someone has to do something in X property, they have to do the same in Y property. But I think it's really important that property managers have a sound understanding of the lease and who is responsible for what and when is really critical because if you can nip all that in the bud early and you can set expectation, like sending those letters out around the the maintenance and so forth, then you can avoid problems. And avoiding problems which can turn into conflict is the best way for everyone to keep moving through these relationships because, you know, in some cases you're in bed with these people for five Mm. years. So get it right up front, set the tone early like you say, Andrew, start doing things the right way at the beginning, not just two months out from the option. It's important because it's a long-term thing. We're not doing this for two months. We're doing it for two years or three years or five years. So you've got to be in it for the long haul. That's probably the most important thing of why I recommend like clients and investors get a property manager because once you've purchased the property, the property manager goes in and because they've got all these online systems, they need to tick the boxes and fill in the boxes. They have to go to the tenant and basically reiterate with them, this is the expectations. And that's yeah. also when you can actually find issues. And that's yeah. why like when I recommend you, we always engage you prior to the property settling so we actually get it nipped on the butt early. Yes. Whereas when you're like an own investor, you're not going to do that. You're just going to be like, when's my next rent due? And then you don't really have those conversations. Yeah, it is. And when I was in Resi Property Manager, 80 to 90% of people have a a property manager for a residential asset. When I moved into commercial, I reckon it's about 50%. And I was baffled that there was all these people that I would ring up when I was in sales and leasing because, you know, we were trying to get property managements for the boss at that time. And they're like, oh, no, no, I manage myself. Yeah, 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 it's all right. They just pay the rent and everything's okay. Well, yeah, it's okay until it isn't okay, right? And a lot of these people probably got away on the skin of their teeth by just paying the rent and assuming that the tenant was looking after the fire compliance and getting that done every six months and servicing the air conditioning and doing all those sort of things. But all it takes is for one tenant not to do what they're required to do. Yeah. And let's say you have a fire and haven't serviced the equipment and the equipment doesn't work and the place burns down and all of a sudden the insurance is on your door saying, hey, well, part of the lease this was supposed to be looked after. You can point all the fingers you want, but ultimately if you're acting as the property manager, it's your responsibility to ensure, like yourself property manager, that the tenant is doing the things they're supposed to do under the lease. And if they haven't done those things, well, then the finger is going to get pointed squarely at you. So what other industry, there might be some out there, but what other industry does someone pay for something for you? Because again, like what we were talking about before, right? A well-written lease, the tenant pays the agent's property management fees. What other industry do you get out there where you get professional service from someone and you don't have to pay for it? It's for free. No one's paying your lawyer for you. No one's paying your accountant, but you can get your property manager paid for as long as the lease allows for it, and even when it doesn't, you should seriously consider it. But when it does allow for it, it's a no-brainer. When property management is covered in the lease, do you ever get pushback from the tenants being like, I think your fee's too high, why am I paying this? Yeah, so to date, I haven't. And I think that's because, going back to what we're talking about, our fees, we do try and keep our fees fair and reasonable. And I'm mindful that, similar to what we're talking about with the cold storage place before, where circa 10 grand a year of revenue well, when you're talking that large of an asset and it's a national cold storage transport business, 
10 grand a year is, yeah, it's 10 grand, but it's not a big blip to them, right? But you've got a mum and dad business that have got mum, dad working in the property and maybe one support staff, 10 grand's a shit ton of money. So it's really important to understand the obligations, the cash flow of the tenant as well, and to tie that into the property as best you can. But yeah, to answer your question, no, to date we haven't because we don't try and take advantage of people. Your fees are reasonable and that's why. Correct. Yeah. Would you ever find property managers try to push it a little bit if they know the fees are included in the lease being like, oh, let's charge an extra 2% because we can get it here? Yeah, man, I had a discussion with someone the other day about it. So someone I know who's just getting into the game, and I've known him for a long time, so I don't mind giving him advice, was asking me, and they've got a, a property that's nearly about a million bucks worth of rent, so across three tenants. And he was trying 5%. He's like, 5% too much? I'm like, I think it is. Yeah, I think I think, <laughs> I think that's a little, I think 50 grand a year is a little bit too much, you know? So so we had that conversation. I think he's brought it back to like 2.5% or something like that. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think not everyone's going to do it, but there's probably some instances where you're like, oh, can I stretch this a little bit? And, you know, we'll push where we can. You know, ultimately, we are trying to build a sustainable and profitable business. But there's a ceiling to where you can go. Yeah, and I'll work it out eventually. Once I have a chat with a few property managers, then all of a sudden you've got a disgruntled tenant and then they're asking to change property managers, for instance. Yeah, and that just causes problems. And we want to mitigate problems as much as possible. We deal with enough of them. And Aaron, do you have any idea why you can't actually charge the property management back to the tenant in a retail lease? What's the purpose of that? Let me answer the question a little bit differently. So in a Retail Shop Lease Act, you can't charge anything that's considered capital X, so it's capital expenditure or land tax back to the tenant. And the anecdotal reason that I've heard around that is it was to stop groups like Westfield and so on passing on, because you imagine the capital expenditure on like a a Westfield and and the land tax on a Westfield. So it was to prevent them from passing those fees on to the tenant, you know, small mum and dad shop owners. So I suspect it's sort of along the same line. I mean, I think that primarily the one that you can't do is capital expenditure. We do have some retail leases where we do charge the tenant management fees and we're entitled to do that. So I think the primary thing for retail leases is the removal of CapEx from a recovery point of view. That's real interesting. I mean, because I guess it's exactly right. A large shopping center would have a huge management cost but it's okay for smaller leases like in an industrial warehouse that's not a retail lease because it's just not going to cost as much. That does actually make sense. It's quite interesting. Yeah, well, as I say, it's, it's more around the CapEx side of things, so more around the land tax. So, for example, like if you've got a strata, a retail strata shop, we have um, one over at uh, Solution we manage, which is a lick land. We can't recover the sinking fund component of the body corporate fees because the sinking fund is considered a contribution to capital expenditure. So whilst 100% of the outgoings are recoverable in theory, we can't recover that one piece. So again, it's important to know that when you're setting these up and structuring these and and looking at what your net return is. Yeah, we're we're voting the past. You don't know if you're actually managing yourself. Like the little intricacies like this, it's like that's why professionals like you do this for us because it's a whole nother industry, a whole nother job, it's a whole nother discipline. And the mum and dad like manager won't know that. Yeah, correct. During COVID, I reckon my property managers saved me 100, 200 plus hours just by staying up to date on what acts and what like government legislation there was. And then mm. talking to every single tenant over and over and over about concessions and things like that. Yeah, I wasn't doing property management through that period. So, but that would have been a really difficult thing to navigate, I think, for all parties. Yeah. One of the common ones I get some confusion over with when we're buying properties is when you've got a retail tenant in an industrial complex because then all of a sudden like it gets a bit ambiguous about okay are they retail are they industrial what's the zoning what's actually in the lease is it legal and things like that so that that always seems to pop up yeah i think in that case one of the best things to do is and i got this in a workbook a while ago when i was doing some upskilling but under the retail shop leases act they actually have a definitions section right so it says if you fit into any of these categories from a business point of view you are a retail lease But it also then goes on to talk about the nature of the asset itself. So not only do you need to look at the business, but you need to look at the nature of the asset as well, because there are certain things like, let's say you've got a mini center and there's four office tenancies, but then there is one retail. Well, then depending on the dynamics of that center and the car parking, and there's a bunch of other things that I can't remember right now, I'm sorry, but the whole property may actually end up being captured under the Retail Shop Leases Act. So you have to be looking at that when you're purchasing, you have to be looking at the business, the definition of the business, mm-hmm. but also the layout of the asset itself and how that may be captured under the actual act too. Yeah. So um, 
I'll find that and send it to you. I've got it floating oh, around here somewhere. It's exactly what I was going to say, Chief. You can send me some yep. resource on that. I'll, I'll make it a well, downloadable PDF for the listeners. Yeah, cool. All right, sounds good. But it also states in the lease what act they're under, right? It's I've seen it before where it says this is a retail lease. It does as long as it's done right, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, I've, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen, I've seen a ton of leases where you know it's a retail shop and they've just got a commercial tenancy agreement. You know what I mean? Yeah, and there's okay. there's been no disclosure provided because there is actually technically so when you use RealWorks, which is an REIQ software platform to provide a lot of the legal documentation we use for our appointments to like the commercial tenancy agreement. So there's, you've got your residential tenancy agreement, you've got your commercial one and there's a retail one. But the amount of times that I've seen a retail business using a commercial one because either the agent doesn't know or they just don't care, yeah. it blows my mind. So yeah, really, I think when you've got a group like Polisi that are out there doing the due diligence for you, that's where you lean on them because they're the ones that are going to take the time to actually go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, sure, you're on a commercial tenancy agreement, but, you know, understanding X, Y, and Z, it really doesn't apply. So there's risk here for you, Mr. Lesser, and you need to understand that before you buy it. I think that's the beauty of having a buyer's agent like Steve's team is that they are able to dissect that for you where a lot of buyers otherwise, a lot of new buyers, might just take it as gospel and go, oh, that's the lease. Yep, cool. It looks good. Great. Thanks very much. I've even had off-market properties sent to me, Aaron, that don't have a lease. You, you ask the agent for a lease and he's like, oh, there isn't one. They're just doing it like behind the scenes. I'm just like, this, <laughs> yes. is, this is baffling. <laughs> a good old handshake. Yeah. That's how it was done in the past. Like in the, the 60s, 70s, like a lot of them were handshake agreements. And then yeah, so, it's... yeah, I know there's some highly like legal things around that. But yeah, it's just baffling how many people don't actually have a proper lease in place. All right, so where do you see the future of commercial property investing or like which sector are you most excited about in the future? Because obviously there's some changes in the post-COVID world and shift away mm. from office space and things like that. But what are your thoughts on just the, this, the industry as a whole moving forward? I've always been a fan of sheds and sheds are probably boring to a lot of people, but I love sheds. I think that obviously COVID changed the way we looked at the world and the way we interacted with the world. And I think that off the back of that, we've seen a huge surge. Obviously, we've seen a down regulation in office usage with all this remote work that's happening. Will that continue? I think to a degree, I think there's a part of the market that will continue. From what I'm seeing, there's a very strong push from certain elements of the market to get people back into offices. So I think the office market will see somewhat of a bounce back, but I don't know if it will ever fully recover to the glory days where it was. But certainly from a shed point of view, we are a society and a civilization that's driven by stuff. People want stuff these days. And the more stuff we get, the more stuff we want. And to get stuff, you have to make stuff. So you have to have somewhere to make the stuff. And then once you've made the stuff, you have to have somewhere to repair the stuff. Or well, please don't stuff. save somewhere to store the stuff. Yes. Self-storage, baby. Or, or, or somewhere to <laughs> place the stuff when you can't fit it in your house. But I think warehouses and industrial for me, offer the most, you know, aside from non-discretionary retail, which can be really hard to get into, you know, if you want to get into like the McDonald's, the medical centers, you know, all that, the servos, you know, there's some super tight yields that you still want to pay. So if you want to get a reasonable yield somewhere between that sort of six to 7%, depending on the strength of the covenant, the lease, and there's a whole bunch of caveats to go into that, which very well yourself. I think that sheds are a lower risk from that point of view, you know, in the sense that, you know, we just took one on at Sunnybank, right? The guys manufacture these huge, steel tubes for air conditioning events. Been going since the 70s, this business. They can't move home. That business is not going to go, oh, you know what? We're going to do work mm. from home. They can't work from home. Like they have to be in a general industrial area with a huge shed with three cranes hanging in the middle. So I think if you are looking at anything and there is a predisposition to one sector, for me, it's sheds. I think right now there's some great growth. There's been some really great growth. And I think that it's got some really good sustainability moving forwards. Yeah, yeah. you can't drive a forklift from home, can you? No, unless you want to piss your neighbours off or you've got acreage. They're just versatile because they can literally be anything. They can be car mechanics, wholesalers, distributors, fabricators, yeah. definitely not storage. Don't look at storage, anyone. Um, just, it can be <laughs> absolutely anything. Yeah, it can be. And, and look, the critical thing, and, and you know this as well as I do, Steve, is that not all sheds are created equally. There's a shed and there's a shed and adequate parking at the front, good access, good height, the right ratios, you know, there's all things that you look at. And, and those are the things I'm sure that you've got the intricate understanding of that you can pass on to your buyers when they're looking at stuff. Yeah. Well, what I like about it is you can buy low risk because you can know that there's going to be more demand in the future. Because if you buy mm. an industrial property and it's surrounded by residential 
and then you look at all the council applications and they're building high density housing, how mm. is more people in 10 years time, like you mentioned, going to need less stuff? You're going to need Correct. more services and products. So I'm not going to guarantee a client capital growth, but generally more demand means capital growth yeah. of the property. Yeah, correct. And also, it just means lower vacancy. If you've got something, you buy something that's a good quality asset that is high demand, it mitigates vacancy. And that's what we all want, right? We want minimizing vacancy to maximize cash flow and maximize return. And the way that I think about it as well is that in any kind of council region anywhere in Australia, it's always geared towards residential. And there's always a slither of industrial (laughs) zoned land, right? But the council that's operating that council region they don't want it to be all industrial. It's always focused on residential and the industrial or commercial supports that residential. So there's always going to be a built-in Correct. lack of supply because it's only a slither of industrial land. They're not mm. just going, oh, let's just wipe out these residential properties and throw on some more industrial zone land to get some more warehouses. That's what we want. It's, it's not like that. It's always residential first. Industrial supports the residential and industrial land is always going to have that built-in lack of supply and high demand because businesses want to go into those highly populated residencies to service the population. So it's it's just got built-in demand right into it, which is exactly what you want for an investment like low risk investment. Yeah. And creating places to work. I was just trying to Google something. Maybe you guys are familiar with, I'm pretty sure it's Stockland that does it. So correct me if I'm wrong, but Aura up at the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. So that's arguably one of the biggest master planned developments that's been sort of happening over the last few years that we've seen in a long time. And all the new land industrial releases out there have a minimum, I think it's about a thousand square meters. Don't quote me. Um, one of the guys from Ray White I work with knows it really well. But ultimately what they've done is they've vetoed any more of these man cages or small storage sheds, Andrew, because it's not bringing work into the area, right? So they've said, okay, well, for all the next lot of industrial land releases, it's got to be a minimum size because there's a minimum size business that has to occupy that property and therefore there's a minimum number of jobs that that business will then provide to the surrounding community. And so what they're ideally obviously trying to do is just lock more people into that area, make it a little self-sufficient yep. satellite location so there's not as many people going up and down the coast. So I just think that sheds make stuff, service stuff, sometimes store stuff, but they provide jobs as well. This is a bit of a tangent, but I, I get a lot of clients ask me about like when they're doing like a greenfield site, so i.e. the government's trying to build up a, a, an area on the fringe of say Brisbane or somewhere like that. Yeah, They build the industrial sheds first because you can't build houses without having industrial sheds. So what happens mm. is, Once they build all the sheds, vacancy rates are normally really high. But then as they start building houses, the vacancy rates come down on the industrial sheds because all the builders are there building the houses. Mm. Then what generally happens is the vacancy rates on the residential is really high because the people haven't moved in yet. And then once the people start moving in and the vacancy rates come down, the industrial property vacancy rates also go up a little bit because all the builders that built the houses move out. But then as the population keeps growing, then it kind of shifts back and it saturates the area with the people who service the area, like the mm. painters and mechanics and panel beaters and stuff like that. Yeah. There's a bit of a cycle with vacancy rates between the residential and commercial. And that's why there's some misconceptions about capital growth, because they do happen at different times based on that demand. Yeah, it's an ebb and flow, isn't it? And I actually like that, what you said about that, Aaron, where different councils are not allowing more self-storage to be developed because that only bakes in (laughs) less supply too for me. I hadn't heard that, but I really like that. That's good. All right, so about to wrap up, mate. What's the one thing you wish people knew more or they appreciated about the world of uh, commercial property management? It's a tough job. It's a very tough job. Yeah, I mean, I I think to reiterate something I said before is that everything's okay until it's not okay. So everything's okay while the tenant's paying their rent and it's all hunky-dory. But when it's not okay is when people probably need the assistance the most. And that's not to say that the service is invaluable the whole time. It absolutely is. But that's when people are going to feel the pinch. Like a lot of things in life, there's a lot of things we can do ourselves. You know, I could probably try and build a fence at home. I could probably try and paint my house. I can probably try and fix my car to some sort of degree but I'm probably going to do a shitty job at it. And I've got motorbikes at home and I'll work on my bikes to a certain level because anything over and above that that I do, I'm just better off paying someone to do it because it's just going to take me three times as long and I'm going to end up with cuts all over my fingers and get shitty and probably kick it and knock it over. So I'd rather just drive it down the road, give it to the professionals and let them do it because, yeah, I'm paying for it, 
but they're doing such a better job and it saves me time and it lets me spend time where I want to spend time. And that's ultimately, I think, where this generation of the world is going. And it's obviously such a foundation, Steve, with what you're doing, but people are looking to create wealth so that it gives them more time to do the things that they want to do with their time. And that's become so diversified. There's so much opportunity out there now that I think that might even be even a different way to wrap it up is that what we do for people's asset allows them to spend that time otherwise doing things that they might want to do themselves. Yeah, that's spot on. I even find like I'm looking for a principal place of residence at the moment and I'm going to engage a local buyer's agent, which people think yeah. is ridiculous because I'm a buyer's agent, but I don't want to spend my weekends doing open homes and having a look and just constantly trolling the market. I'd rather focus my attention on the business or family right. and things like that. What's a better use of your time too? So you could be making money doing something else. So like Elon Musk, he shouldn't be washing his own car. Correct. He should be figuring out how to, to make a better, you know, yeah. electric car. That'll yeah. make him more money. He doesn't wash his fleet of cars, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. That was actually one of the reasons we moved into this office here at Camp Hill Marketplace because the car wash do downstairs. So I can drive <laughs> my car in, I hand my keys over, I come back at the end of the day, the thing's awesome. sparkling, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> Have you seen the, the stat about, I think it's Bill Gates, it's if, if he drops a $100 bill... It's uh, more expensive for him to pick it up than just leave it. Yeah, 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 I've heard that, yeah. Uh, yeah one day, one day. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Aaron, plug time. So if any listeners or investors want to contact you and have a chat about their property or just your services, where do they go to find out more about you? Yeah, so I mean, we're on all the socials. So the website is bountytm.com.au and pretty much the same on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook. We don't have a huge amount on our website. That's in part by design. It really is only a, a place for people to get a bit of information about us and what we do and then reach out so you can contact us through any of those mediums and yeah, always happy to have a chat. Yeah, I can personally vouch for you. Like we've worked together now, what, 100 plus times and every client, yeah. there's never a negative review about you. Yeah, we haven't lost one yet. So yeah, and I plan to keep it that way. No, sounds good. Thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. More than welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. This has been Steve Polisi, Aaron Burdenshaw and Andrew Bean on the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Property Investing Explained series. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network. 